You know the saying, talk is cheap. Action is challenging. Racial equity can seem like an unattainable ideal, but in reality, this work is happening in real time in neighborhoods all around the country. Welcome to This Is Community, a podcast series by purpose-built communities about breaking the cycle of poverty and creating vibrant communities where everyone has the opportunity to thrive. I'm Alexandra Wiggins, a community development advisor with purpose-built communities. In this episode, we hear from the first cohort of Equity Ambassadors, a group of executive directors from around purpose-built's national network, leaders who have been instrumental in elevating racial equity in their communities. Michelle Matthews, Senior Vice President at Purpose Built Communities, moderated a panel at our annual conference in Orlando, Florida in 2018. My name is Michelle Matthews, and I'm excited to be here with you this morning, along with some of my colleagues, to talk to you a little bit about a program that we started this year, called the Equity Ambassadors. And I am so excited to tell you a little bit about the program, but even more importantly, to let you hear from our executive directors as they are really taking on this challenge of thinking about what does equity mean in this work and and how it will change our work. So I'm gonna do a little bit of a setup for you to give you um, a little bit of information and then really I'm gonna let our panelists, along with the other equity ambassadors, take the day and give them an opportunity also to answer questions from you. So in this uh, plenary we have this morning, two things we really want to accomplish. Uh, One is to just really, I can't say at this moment, initiate the conversation focused on equity and thinking about how we use our individual and collective power because I know that you've been getting good ideas and good stories and good conversation on this topic of equity because many of our uh, workshops and some of our side conversations have already started to deal with this issue. But we're going to speak squarely about equity and advancing it and how uh, we each individually as well as collectively can work together to make that happen. And then as I said, I wanna introduce our, what is our first cohort of equity ambassadors. And I think what you're gonna find this morning is, you know, I would say a lot of more understanding about each of the individuals who serve as executive directors that are here on the panel, how their story and their experiences have influenced their passion for this work and for their need to really focus on pursuing equity. So, we really wanna make sure that we understand that equity is both an outcome. In other words, we really want to make sure that zip code or where you're born does not influence your outcome. And so we have to focus on Um, ensuring that we have the outcomes that we want that are more equitable, but we also have to think about equity as a process. There's a lot of other questions that might come about this process of equity in terms of how those that are in the picture actually have been engaged in the solution. And so when I think about equity, I think about really three things. I think about investment, which is is a lot of the work that we do. We do a lot of investment in the community. 
But I also think about voice. And when I say voice, I mean do you, the people affected by the decisions and the investments we make really have uh, a vested interest and a vested voice in the process. And then I think about power. And we'll talk a little bit more about that. But do, again, do those individuals have power in the process to be able to change their outcomes as they partner with us in community to do that work? So the opportunity really was to go deeper with some of those ideas. And that the Equity Ambassador Program is just one way as a formal program within the Purpose Built Network that we are really trying to grapple with these issues and put them front and center in some of our conversations and we know that that's not always easy. So the ambassador program is really to help us think about how do we better normalize conversations around race, equity, and inclusion and do that in a way that we actually think about tools and a toolkit that will strategically help us address these issues. You know, one of the things that I think is challenging as an African-American um, female in doing this work is um, I f many times feel comfortable talking about race. It's something I've had to deal with all my life. But it's not always easy to talk about the hard conversations. I like to say sometimes we talk at race, but we don't really get into talking about race and the tough conversations that we need to have. So what we're trying to do is to equip our partners and our executive directors and staff and board with tools that will allow them to have deeper conversations and really think about how you bring the power of voice and community into this conversation. But I think most importantly, this program allows us to leverage the talent and the work of executive directors and staffs and boards all across the network to really um, sort of broaden the conversation and broaden um, our ability to really support whether it's prospects or it's new members in the network with the knowledge that we've already gained on these issues. So there's our first cohort. You see four of them here on the stage. Uh, Kia Baker is from Raleigh. Tammy Hoy Hawkins is from Spartanburg. Sally Macklin is from Woodlawn in Birmingham. Um, Othello Meadows, and he's in Omaha. Danny Shoy is in Atlanta with Eastlake. Kirk Wester is in Tulsa and Ann Whitlock is in Houston. And so you see we have four of our uh, first cohort here, but uh, the rest of our cohort is sitting up at the front and I just would ask them to stand and uh, wave. They'll be back up on the stage as we do some questions and answering. So before I turn it over to our panelists, uh, I thought I would just give you a little bit about me and um, through the lens of my education pipeline. We talk about how that can be such a game changer for those in our community and that we have to look at what investments do we need to make to make sure that our children and our students and families have what they need. So I thought I would just give you a, just a little bit about me. I'm from the D in the DMV of the District of Columbia, Maryland, and Virginia. 
and I went to Phoebe Hurst Elementary. Phoebe Hurst is uh, right across from Sidwell Friends, where if you don't know much about the district, but you know a little bit about various presidents' children, it's a private school that um, uh, Amy Carter went to and the Obama children went to. So I went to a, a, a public school across the street. So it was a community of influence. I didn't live there though. I lived in um, Northeast Washington, D.C., South Dakota and Michigan. And you know, when you do this work, you have an opportunity to reflect on things in your childhood. Most of the, uh, we lived in an integrated neighborhood, but most of the children did not go to the neighborhood school. And my mother did not necessarily want us to go to the neighborhood school because it was overcrowded and it was, she didn't feel it was going to bring the results that she wanted for her children. But we were very fortunate that she was able to drive us across town every day to go to Phoebe Hearst. And there were probably only about, um, I would say, 10 African-American families uh, from uh, kindergarten to second grade and then we actually had busing. The point that I make about that part of my educational journey was that I was the minority in a majority school, but the teacher that was the teacher everyone wanted to get into the fourth grade was an African-American teacher. She was a role model, she was tough, but she was fair, and she reached out to all of us that were um, in the minority to know that we were cared for, that she expected nothing less than the best from us, but that she would also have our back. And so although I was in a situation where I was definitely the minority, I felt like I had a voice. Whatever voice you have in second grade, right? <laughs> but I had a voice. In fourth grade, my parents divorced, and so the uh, red that you see on the, I guess it's, your left, is Montgomery Bear Elementary, I mean, Montgomery Bear High School. That was my high school, and it's in Silver Spring, Maryland. Um, and Montgomery County is known for having inclusionary housing, and if you look at any of the research, as you looked at students that go to live in mixed-income communities and go to school from those communities, a lot of times Montgomery County is the county that you understand as someone even in the 70s that was doing that. I point that out because I was in a very diverse and inclusive um, school setting and I feel like I did have a say, but in reflection again, I'm not sure I had a voice. So I was in the right sort of place of investment because it was a very strong school and I was in um, accelerated classes. But one of the things that happened quite a bit is that when I'd get out of class and I'd go to another class that was not accelerated, white students would be talking about the workload and the teacher and they would tell me I didn't understand. And yet, two periods before, I sat in that class with them. So I was there and it was inclusive, but I don't really feel like I had a voice. And so that influenced my decision of where I went to college. And that middle logo, Spelman sisters that are in the audience, because um, I know we have some, <laughs> changed my trajectory. 
so even though I had strong education, here was a place that I found people investing in me. And, and let's remember that while it might be an HBCU, historically black college, it doesn't mean that there's not diversity there, right? There's socioeconomic diversity, there's geographic diversity, there's um, not so much gender diversity as we knew it back then, but um, you know, there was a lot of diversity. And it, that place helped me find my voice. They invested in me in ways that I couldn't imagine. And I had the opportunity to see that I too had power to go out and shape my own career, start my own business, and land here today to talk about this topic that is so passionate for me. So that's just a little bit about me and my journey. And you can see some of the nuance of that investment, say, and power. And so now I want to just give us a framework very quickly on the topic we're going to talk about today. And we like to, uh, in the ambassador program, talk about power as the ability to define our own reality. And that's what we are wanting to ensure that those who live in our neighborhoods and work with us feel that they too have power to define their reality. So I'm going to give you um, a sort of a structure that we're going to use for our conversation today. And each of the executive directors and, and ambassadors are going to share a little of their story around this framework. So I'm going to talk about it very quickly. You'll, we'll talk and we'll keep reinforcing it as we go through the process. So the first way to think about power, because all of us have power in this work that we do. And we can come at it from several different ways, depending on the situation and the um, partners that we have involved. So the first is around individual formal. And this power really is stated in terms of your positional power, whether you're an executive director, whether you're a board member of a network on a network member um, city location, whether you hold office, you have power by virtue of the position that you hold. And the question and the thing that we're bringing out today is what are you doing with that power around race and equity? And you're going to hear a story from Kia to talk a little bit about how she uses her individual formal power around race and equity. Um, the, the next is what we call individual informal. And so that still is about who you are, but per Kurt is going to give us a little bit of view of this from the standpoint of the relationships that you have. How do you, as the individual and in who you are, informally use your power in the relationships that you develop and the individual choices that you make day to day in terms of whether you're advancing racial equity, or you're perhaps being a barrier. The third is collective informal. And Danny's going to talk a little bit about that position of power, which is really thinking about marshalling and being a part of a collective. In fact, here today, we are all sort of a part of this collective informal as we come together once a year to think about how we learn together and how we go, not individually as an organization, but how can we go as a collective to advance the things around equity that are important. And then finally, 
Sally's going to talk a little bit about inst uh, collective formal, which is really about the institution. You know, Kia's going to talk about the position of whatever role you play. Sally's going to talk about what does it mean to sort of institutionalize that power from an organizational perspective. So I know you're going to be very excited to hear these stories. I'm going to just ask each of the panelists, starting with Sally, to introduce themselves. I gave their names, but just say a little bit about them, and then we'll, we'll kick off the conversation. Sure, thank you. Um, um, good morning. I'm Sally Mack, and I'm the executive director of the Woodlawn Foundation, and we are the lead organization of the Purpose Built Network in Birmingham, Alabama, and we've been there for about eight years. There we go. Good morning, everyone. I'm Danny Shoy. I am the president and CEO of the Eastlake Foundation. As you all know, Eastlake is the founding network member and the model for this great work, and I've been with the Eastlake Foundation now for eight years and leading it for the last five of those eight. Good morning. Uh, Kirk Wester, Executive Director for Growing Together in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Uh, founded the organization um, in 2011 and uh, been part of the network uh, for the last three years and we center in the Kendall Whittier neighborhood in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Good morning. I'm Kia Baker, the Founding Executive Director for Southeast Raleigh Promise and we have been a part of the network for about two and a half to three years. Um, I'm going to talk to you all this morning about individual formal power. Um, I want to point out that how you show up in this space is very different for each of us, and especially different regarding your personal identity. But ultimately what I hope is that each of us can examine who we are and how we navigate our personal power while in roles of leadership. I grew up in Southeast Raleigh, but I didn't grow up in poverty. I did grow up with a mom as a public school teacher and a dad as a mid-level government paper pusher. <laughs> Don't tell him I said that, please. Um, <laughs> I grew up knowing what it was like to eat peanut butter and syrup sandwiches after school or for the lights to be off for a day, of, day or two, despite both of my parents having meaningful work. So it always occurred to me that if I, who had two parents who had good jobs, was experiencing this, what in the world were my friends and classmates who had just one mom or just one dad working a minimum wage job experiencing? I knew I was growing up in my community with privilege that others did not have. I paid for it on the playground. I paid for it through life and I have to answer to that power and privilege today. It was always my dream to come home and serve my community. I mean, these are the people that raised me. These are the places that made me into the individual that I am today. And I'm extremely blessed. But I learned that there is a very special place for a relatively young black woman in leadership. I learned that my position holds power that I don't get to misunderstand. When I think about equity, I have to think about the juxtaposition of my power and our oppression. I have to remember that, like it or not, I have become a gatekeeper. And that in itself is an intentional part of the history and systems of this country. And I have to remember those afternoons when we had no lights or no snacks, and I have to remember that my friends had it way worse, and that neither, neither of those situations are acceptable. 
So now, I lead with equity first, because I know that we can do better by one another. I lead with equity because I believe in every single brown baby born, I believe that every single brown baby born into this world has the same potential as their white peers as long as we provide them with the right resources, places, and spaces to grow. I lead with equity because I know your zip code shouldn't determine the length of your life, nor the value of your labor. That your race nor gender should determine your ability to just be free. I take it very seriously that whatever decisions I make as an executive director not only positively impact our community, but don't unintentionally negatively impact our community. We have adopted, my team, my wonderful team, y'all. Uh, we have adopted the lead with equity standard to ensure that we are looking in every corner and under every leaf to make sure that every resident of Southeast Raleigh can thrive. I used to think that because I grew up in Southeast Raleigh that people would just trust me. <laughs> I mean, I have good intentions um, and I am a part of that tribe. But I've learned that my access into places and spaces, my access to information and conversations, that matters. So now I work hard to invite a neighbor or friend into the spaces of access with me. I've learned that I can't make decisions in isolation, but always need a neighbor to keep me and the rest of the room in check. If I can leave y'all with one thing to think about, it would be this. How does your personal identity relate to power and opportunity? And how do you and your leadership role navigate the ways in which you share access and power to create equity and also take up more space where your identity has historically been denied access. I had a really great conversation with a new friend last night, and we decided that although you may not have power granted to you, if you do it right, if you're strategic, you can take it. So how will you either take or yield your personal power? Thank you. You see what I'm talking about? These equity ambassadors are really thinking long and hard about their own experiences and what it means for their leadership. And I, I love the charge that you're giving us, is how do we think about our experiences, Kia, and what it means for how we use that, how we use that power. And just because you're an African-American female on these issues, all of us, no matter whether we're black or white or Pacific Islander, et cetera, we all have power in this equity Absolutely. conversation. So Kurt. Thank you. Um, so I have the task of talking about individual and formal. And so um, my experiences are a little bit interesting. Um, so when I was a young adult, I was growing up in a predominantly segregated community, all white suburb um, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And so I did what every, uh, all my peers would expect. I married a Puerto Rican. <laughs> Which she uh, made me commit to say, buenos dias a todos esta mañana. So, because most folks in Oklahoma uh, don't acknowledge um, individuals like her very well. I learned to speak Spanish and together my wife and I saw struggles of the vulnerable. 
Uh, being a person of Christian faith, I also struggled with how that faith should be lived out. And we felt a strong compulsion that it wasn't satisfactory for us to, uh, at the time, what I would say, live in the suburb and commute to the ghetto, but we needed to invest our lives there. We need to be a part of that. And at the time, I'll be honest, um, I came with this sense of uh, arrogance that somehow I was going to change the world. And what I soon discovered what is the, it was that it was my world that was going to be changed. So as a white man from a culture and history of advantage, I began to understand how many choices every day that we have at our disposal to bring about a more equitable community. And I also felt a great burden to use that power position and advantage to bring about justice for those that didn't have it. We learned an approach by others of faith across the country, living out the principles of what's called Christian community development. And there's many in this room who adhere to those principles. And there are three R's of relocation, reconciliation, and redistribution. So I want to talk about those for a moment. So the first is relocation. We, we learned this well. Um, I think, uh, again, we did an unusual thing. And we said, hey, we're going to buy a home. Where do we want to buy a home? I don't know. Where's the worst neighborhood in Tulsa? Let's do that. And in fact, we had to almost threaten to fire our realtor because she just would not show us a home in that neighborhood. And so uh, in relocation, I discovered the power of community. Uh, this is a picture here of my family and my extended family uh, in our community. And, and what we've done, we've had a tradition every year doing what we call a pastelada party. And if you're familiar with pateles or uh, tamales in the Mexican culture, basically come together with all the ingredients and spend the entire morning putting these together in a giant assembly line only to like cook them for the next three hours. And by the time you think you're going to eat your arm off, they're ready to go and you gorge yourself. It's an amazing experience. By the way, nothing I would ever experience with my white family. We, have pretty, we tend to have pretty boring Thanksgivings and Christmases. My mom asked me when she can start getting invited to this, and I said, when you learn Spanish. Reconciliation. So the idea is oftentimes we think about relocating to communities. The first question I get is, well, what about gentrification? Well, first of all, there's nobody standing in line to do this thing, just to be clear. And the second is, is that uh, without reconciliation and redistribution, I think you do have to worry about that sometimes. The idea of reconciliation is this idea of uh, putting yourself in, in proximity to the people who are having challenges. To think about how you are wielding your own power and privilege in a way that's going to bring them together and that's going to make things right. I use an example of uh, this last one. This last picture is particularly personal to me. The young lady with the face mask on is actually my daughter. She just turned 31 years old this last week. And we adopted her when she was 15 years old, uh, first in her family to graduate high school. And she had saved seven years to buy a house just down the street from us. And unfortunately, the house caught fire and burned in May. And also, unfortunately, she had failed to re-up her insurance. And so this is a picture of our community coming out and gutting the house. And I should tell you that before the fire department had even left and I was dealing with her in tears, wondering like what's next, I need to go, I was trying to go through the head, I need to secure the house. I turned around only to realize that the entire house had already been secured. A friend of ours from the neighborhood uh, named Jose had come over and actually brought plywood and had already boarded up the entire house. So that reconciliation goes both ways. And I, and I don't have enough time to talk about the reconciliation that's happened in my own heart as I've been faced with my own implicit biases. Redistribution, this idea of how do we use the resources that we've been given. I'm of, the, I'm of the notion and of the belief that what I have is actually not mine. That what I have is a, I am to be a steward of that and to be using it to advance the lives of others. 
And so we, we purposely budget a large amount of our dollars to give away, but we don't give it away in a typical scenario. I'll talk about that in a moment. But we think about how do we not only use finances to redistribute, but how do we use our own networks? This is something that's often not talked about in our circles. I think I have access to networks and, and social capital that frankly my community doesn't have, so how do I use that? So I'll give you a quick example. This gentleman here, good friend of mine, Jose, he, uh, he was a um, landscaper struggling to find work, undocumented individual, but I knew he did great work. So I asked him to come over and build me a beautiful garden. If you know anything about my wife and I, if we could just take all of our grass, to put rocks there, paint it green, I would love it. Um, I cannot, I'm not a gardening person, but I knew he was. I asked him to build me a beautiful garden. He came over, gave me a quote that was typical in our community, which was really inexpensive. I said, Jose, I'm not paying you that. That's not what it costs to do this. So I went out and got a quote from a couple of other folks, which was about twice as much as what he quoted me. I said, this is the minimum I'm paying you to do it. And so he came in, built us a garden, and I pay him for the next three and a half, four years every month to maintain that. And then I go in, and how many, about another dozen people over the course of that three years said, man, you've got a beautiful garden, who does that? That's why I know an amazing guy named Jose. I'll give you his number, one caveat, don't pay him what, he charged, what he's gonna quote you. You pay, him what he's, well, you pay him what he's worth. And I say that because so many folks that look like me, we think, we, we get obsessed with the American ideal of, of good deal, like how are we going to have the best bet, where can we find uh, the way that advantages us, and I'm just here to tell you, I've got the funds to pay him what he's worth. And if I'm really gonna advance justice, I need to set aside that silliness and start uh, making decisions about what are in the best interest of people. And that's, and that's one of the challenges living in a predominantly uh, Latino neighborhood with mostly undocumented individuals. I get calls all the time, hey, do you know somebody that can do this cheaply? I do, but if you pay them what, you pay them what they price you, I'm gonna hurt you myself. So with that, I just wanted to uh, you know, leave you with a few ideas. My questions is in reflecting on these uh, short examples, I wonder what kind of world would exist if those of us with means, power, and privilege uh, leveraged our lives and did things that made us uncomfortable. What would, what would it look like if we actually put where we live on the table for consideration for how we're supposed to be used to advance justice? What would that look like? What, would a world, what kind of world would there be if we saw our own children as part of that solution? And saw the schools that we consider failing across the street as being a place where we're gonna invest our own kids? Because what I can guarantee you is, is that whatever, kid, whatever classroom my kid's in is gonna be an amazing classroom. And the moment that I tie the success of my, uh, of my friends and family, or friends and children of color to my own success is the moment that we start seeing equity. And so I'm putting that on the table. We're looking at, and what, what, if, what if suddenly we began to see the beauty that is in these neighborhoods and how, is, and how we ourselves are going to be open to learning from that beauty? What, would, what kind of world would there be if we got into proximity of the pain of the world to let it change and affect us? So um, I just conclude with, what, with the question, as, a, as, as particularly as white people, propped up by a long history of advantage, power, and uh, privilege, what if we took seriously the fact that systems change must first be preceded by individual change and individual choices that sometimes are inconvenient for us? What I, I love about working with this group and as we were putting together this panel, the, the idea that uh, Kurt 
really embodies what he believes in his individual choices. And that's not to say that everybody is going to be able to move to a particular neighborhood or always be able to make those choices that um, align the work we do and our values. You know, it's hard. It's, it's, there are tensions in these decisions. But clearly, Kurt has a passion around this and so he, uh, has really shown us how do you think about your individual power and the individual decisions that you make and how they align with your values, your faith, and your work. And so Danny, next. Good morning again. Never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it's the only thing that ever has. That's a quote that has stuck with me, I think since about 1996 when I was an AmeriCorps member. And it's a quote by Margaret Mead. And I'm grateful I have this platform and this opportunity to talk about power because it's not often that black men, and I'm certainly one, can talk about power without people feeling threatened. Even at the highest office in this country as president, that black men can talk about power. So my job, thank you, my job this morning is to talk to you about the collective informal and really, the backbone of that is how you engage community. Um, I want to spend a little time talking to you about my own community, talking to you as a lover of history about the history of community in this country, then to talk to you again about my community where I grew up, and then to talk about the great place where I work, which is Eastlake. So my family hails from this part of the world, uh, from the Caribbean region, with part of my family being from a tiny country called Montserrat. And if I were to try to point to, you, point to it on that map, you wouldn't see it because it's a little speck on that map. The other part of where my family comes from is the lower part of that circle, and that's Panama. So as Kirk was talking, I was sitting here trying to remember to talk in English so you can all understand, and not to talk in the Spanish that I know. Uh, in both places, community has been central to my family. Certainly in places like Panama, where we think of the Panama Canal that was good for people who wanted to make it from the Atlantic Ocean to the Pacific Ocean and have a shortcut, I would say to you the canal was good in that sense, but also disruptive to people. Uh, and then in Montserrat, which is where my, most of my family comes from, on my mom's side, certainly the network of the community that was there. And to be honest with you, until I did the Equity Ambassadors, I tended to think about community as buildings and institutions um, and place, and I hadn't really pushed myself or challenged myself to really think about people. This is Montserrat. Montserrat has a small population. It's in the Caribbean. Uh, it is a British territory, uh, still is a British territory to this day. Has a population, probably when it's thriving, of about six or 7,000 people. A volcano erupted, the Safura Hills volcano, in 1997. So what you're looking at in the picture is the bell tower on the left in the middle that was a place where people once convened and con congregated, and you're looking at that same bell tower covered in volcanic ash. I share this to say that the community of Munsrat, that network of people, were disrupted by natural disaster. Oftentimes we assume that things are disrupted by natural disaster and we forget about the ways that humankind, let me be more specific, mankind, and I'm being gender specific, because often as men we are socialized to conquer things and women are socialized to create things, so I say mankind at times, we can be that natural disaster. So when I think of examples like Black Wall Street, uh, which was a neighborhood in um, North, North Tulsa, Oklahoma, the Greenwood community that was destroyed literally destroyed by Klan and by white mobs. Before then, it had thriving restaurants, businesses, 
a hospital, a school, uh, so many things, that's what we tend to think of. We tend to think of those kinds of very obvious, overt human disasters. But we don't think about beautiful places like Central Park in New York. And we tend to not think about, whether we know or don't know, Seneca Village, which existed there before the park was created in 1857, I believe, which was a thriving African-American community. So this is my community. You're looking at pictures of my family. Since I'm the only boy in the family, you probably can tell from the pictures which <laughs> person is me. Um, the top picture in the top corner uh, is my mom, me as a baby, and my three older sisters. For the longest while, I thought that I had four older sisters, because that's my cousin Mimi, who snuck into the family photo in the corner, while Mimi and a lot of my other cousins growing up were part of our network, because we were folks who had migrated from the Caribbean to the United States, to New York, and our community became a West Indian community where I grew up in the Bronx. That's the same West Indian community that you're looking at in the bottom picture, which I'm gonna talk about in just a second. You can't see the picture at the top really well because it's cut off. Otherwise, you'd see that two of my sisters are wearing dresses made from the same fabric because in our community was a seamstress who lived on our street and she often had to make clothes because my, my mom couldn't afford to buy us all clothes. And if you were able to see the picture on the top and you can see it in the bottom, I'm wearing a suit that's a little too small for me because with being the only boy, I inherited the hand-me-downs from my cousin. So the last thing I'll say about where I grew up in the Northeast Bronx, in a little neighborhood called the Valley, you can't see it here, but when I think about the ways structurally that communities or networks are disrupted, I think about the number five train that ran at the end of my block that disrupted the neighborhood literally right in the middle of it. I think about the overgrown bush on the right side of that picture, uh, which is often where the gang congregated in my neighborhood where a lot of the drugs were sold. Uh, and when that got cut back, it moved to the park, um, which claimed some members in my family, which I'll talk about in just a moment. I also think about highways. So I cannot think for the life of me as a history major, as someone who's grown up in New York and now lives in Atlanta, any time that I can think of any of those things, drug-infested park, a train line, um, overgrown bush, or a highway cutting off wealthy white communities. This is the way that we disrupt networks in America. When I also think about networks, I think of some of the historic networks, and, and again, informal networks comprised of people. And you see images from me that historically are iconic. Uh, Tommy Smith and Juan Carlos at the 1968 Olympics, uh, raising their fists to represent black power. I think about current and contemporary images like Colin Kaepernick taking a knee and all the controversy it's caused. I think about the Black Panther Party, which for most folks, uh, it's been misrepresented and over-militarized as a threat to the United States, but oftentimes we don't talk about the fact that the Black Panther Party uh, early on was a supporter and convener of early learning and breakfast programs in, the black, in black communities all across the country. And then certainly, probably one of the most infamous networks is the Beehive, is Beyonce. And so we have some Beehive folk in here. And I think about this which was the formation uh, performance that she had at the Super Bowl and all the stir that it caused. So this is my community now. Um, I say that I'm a native New Yorker, will always love New York, but for the last 26 years, Atlanta has been my community and Eastlake is my community. And I think differently about my collective informal power and what it means to engage people in community. So certainly you've all heard the Eastlake story and you've heard about Tom Cousins and you've heard about Eva Davis. Uh, and you've heard about a number of other people who were involved with ESAC from early on, but oftentimes we don't talk about the people 
who, while those leaders certainly deserve the praise uh, for taking chances and taking risks, you don't often hear about the people behind them who are taking real life, everyday risks. Like Mrs. Davis's family, when their house was firebombed twice, when she decided to stand up against the, as she would say, the drug boys. I think about the committed, thoughtful, smart residents, courageous residents, who when we recently had an issue um, with one of our public partners, the Atlanta Housing Authority, that while we were grateful to have a Shirley Franklin and a Lillian Giornelli to disrupt the status quo, we were also able to engage residents to go down to the Atlanta Housing Authority board members and remind those board members of their civic duty, which was to protect and provide a high quality option, housing option for them. That's who you're looking at are those seniors, mostly seniors who were sitting in the picture, some of whom, by the way, stepped foot on the East Lake Golf Club for the very first time when we celebrated to thank them. I think about the image at the bottom as I wrap up of our, our two seniors who were in the graduating class of 2017, and I think about all the people in the villages of Eastlake, in the Eastlake community, and in the Drew community where Cynthia uh, Kuhlman and Don Duran sitting at the back and Lindsay Lazinski have fearlessly led for a long time, and going down to the Atlanta public school system into those board meetings and having people write postcards and say that we are worthy of having a brand new school. Those are the ways that I think of the collective informal. So what I'd leave you with, what I'd leave you with is thinking about the ways that you engage people in community and thinking beyond the built environment and thinking about the importance of relationships um, and thinking about the way that you harness that for good and not just when you're starting your projects for the 17 other network members in this magnificent network and the planning that goes in, but thinking all throughout the lifeline of our projects of the importance of going back to people and not just in crisis, but thinking about them every day. So I would challenge you to think about that. Thank you. Uh, I, as I, I've had an opportunity to listen to your, to your story and in this idea of the informal collective, you know, that's the first time I've heard someone talk about the Panama Canal. You know, in terms of it being a disruptor. And the, point, the reason I'm gonna make that point and, and, and about with, with networks is when it doesn't touch us personally, right, but it benefits us, we don't think about what it took to get there and, and the impact that we've had. And so you're really challenging us to think about those networks that we're disrupting and how we rebuild them as we do this work. Thank you. So Sally. Thank you, and this is a, a tough act to follow. Um, this, is, this has been very challenging. I, I think I can say for all of us up here it, for different reasons, but um, I have been asked to speak about the collective formal um, impact on racial equity, and I really translate that as how are we pushing our institutions and our organizations to make a positive impact around racial equity. The Woodlawn Foundation, as I mentioned earlier, has been implementing the purpose-built model for eight years now. So we have been focusing on education, mixed-income housing, and community wellness in our work. I used to think that just by virtue of doing this work, that that was enough. You know, we'd always thought about the possible negative aspects of gentrification through displacement. We built an early learning center um, as a mixed income model and gave priority admissions to the residents in the community, you know, I really felt like we were doing things that were right, the right way. 
Um, we've always been resident focused and we've also tried to think about any unintended consequences that could happen through our community change effort. But through my work with purpose-built communities and through the amazing relationships that I have built with our residents in Woodlawn, I've realized that this isn't enough. And I've learned that until we start naming racial equity, that it is going to be, continue to be left out of the conversation, and sometimes those conversations are hard. But most importantly, it's gonna be left out of our strategies as we are figuring out ways to solve some of these issues. Because of what I have learned and I'm continuing to learn, um, we have changed the way that we do business every day. Um, some of them may seem small, but we are changing the way we think about every decision that we make. Our board has gone through formal racial equity training. We worked with the Center for Social Inclusion, Race Forward. We've had hosted several community conversations around race and inclusion. And we've really changed the way that we are looking at every decision that we make um, among our staff. And we're reading books, and we're talking, and we're learning, and we're, we're teaching each other as we go. Um, I'll give one example, and it is a project that we are doing in partnership with Rev Birmingham. It's one of our economic development partners in Woodlawn. And we actually wrote money into this grant so that we could hire someone from the neighborhood to coordinate this grant. In the past, we might have just tried to find a volunteer. So we're really trying to be more intentional about how we compensate residents for their voice, as Michelle was saying, um, to get more engagement but compensating people for their time so that they can be a part of these great opportunities of programs that are gonna positively impact the community. I continue to struggle, um, feeling like none of this is enough. This is, this is so huge, um, the challenges that we're facing. And who am I to lead a conversation about race? Um, gender equity, economic equity, even equities around place based on how I grew up. But racial equity, I, was, I always struggled with how, how do I have that conversation? But I'm learning that by equipping myself with knowledge and tools, I can have conversations with people that some of my other peers may not be able to. I can be a bridge. By understanding my own biases, I can push others to recognize theirs, and I can help them to reconcile that space between their head and their heart. I can have productive conversations, and I can build true community. I can use my personal, my personal privilege to push my organization, but other institutions in the right direction. And together, we can begin to change the narrative around racial equity. Thank you. Uh, you know, one of the things that Sally pointed out in thinking about this collective formal and the institution, in all of the stories, you hear that individual leadership, that self, that, you know, standing up and deciding what is your leadership platform. But I think it's also important for uh, boards and staff of network member institutions to think about what happens when you're not there. 
So you can be that leader that's that um, leader of equity and to be sort of heroic. In other words, lead that organization because of who you are and what you believe in. And that may bring about those strategies for the time you're there. But at the end of the day, for sustainability, we need institutions to have those ideas institutionalized and embedded. And so the work that you're doing with the board and with the staff and thinking about policies, personnel policies, all those kinds of things, embeds this idea of equity in the institution while you're there, but also, you know, at some point, all of the, us, not just these on stage, will retire or move on to other things, and you want to make sure that these principles are embedded in the work generations to come. So before I bring up the other equity ambassadors to do a little bit of conversation before we open it up for Q&A, please, please give a round of applause to those. And with that, we have three other ambassadors that are going to join us in the conversation. So let me just tell you, working with these seven people, I'm not sure I've laughed so much when we get together. Not only are we doing good work, but um, we have a lot of fun in the process as well. I'm just going to ask each of you to introduce yourselves um, and again, tell us where you're from just so that we remind who we all are. Uh, Othello Meadows, uh, President and CEO of 75 North Omaha, Nebraska. Good morning. I'm Ann Whitlock. I am Executive Director of Connect Communities in Houston, Texas. Good morning, everyone. I'm Tammy Hoy Hawkins with the Northside Development Group in Spartanburg, South Carolina. All right. So, um, just how has being a part of this program, I know we're in our infancy, but how at, we've heard from some of the panelists how it's changed you or some ahas that you've had, but um, who else would be willing to share uh, an aha or a challenge that you have felt as part of being with this program that might be helpful for our audience? I'll take a stab. Um, so I think being a part of this group has given me the space to, um, in a safe, safe environment, to examine my own implicit biases. And I work in a community that's predominantly Hispanic, uh, with a lot of with a lot of refugees as well. And in my work, I started hearing this phrase that, oh. You know, Latinos, they, they value work more than education. And, you know, I kept hearing it over and over again, even from Latinos. And so I just started kind of picking up on this mantra and without really examining it. And as a result of my work in this group, I really, it, you know, I started thinking about it. I'm like, well, it's not because they value work more than education. It's just that either by necessity or by, you know, maybe almost like a protective instinct, you know, that's something that we can't, we can't think about achieving either because of our status or, you know, other situations in the family. And, you know, and then I started having conversations with people in my work and I just, I really, it was an aha moment, like, 
well, of course they don't value, you know, work over education. It was just something that they didn't feel that they could, that they either deserved or could achieve. So I really thank this group for just kind of pushing me and um, opening my kind of my thoughts and ideas around the people that I work with. I would just say that it pushed myself, you know, I thought that I was the most unbiased person and, you know, I'm from the south side of Chicago, I'm from the north, moving to the south, and when I arrived there, I was appalled by racism. And I thought that I was different than that, and I still feel I'm different than that, but I never had the opportunity to really think about my white privilege or my white advantage as a woman in the south. And this group has really created a safe space to have these conversations and to really push the conversation, the work that we do, where I think that we're afraid to have these conversations. I feel like a lot of times they don't feel comfortable, they're uncomfortable. And I think this ambassador program has really pushed me personally um, to challenge myself um, to take it to the next level. That we all know that what the work that we do is the right way, but how we do it and how we talk about it and how we're going to leave this place better uh, is really going to impact. And so this has really made a big difference on me and, and in many cases, um, you know, really changed me personally. So for me, there were two big ahas since I came into this program. Uh, one is that I take, sometimes take for granted and try not to take for granted that my collective informal power is actually a shared power. So as I look out and I see my staff, uh, Catherine Woodling, Jesse Bond, uh, Rhonda Fisher, I'm not sure if Jennifer McCreary is in the room, uh, and Aaron James, um, I think about the fact that sometimes when we've hit collective issues, organizational issues, I can go to a Catherine who serves as a president of her neighborhood association, and Catherine's able to make calls uh, and get things done through the MPU. Uh, Rhonda lives in the neighborhood, so I took that for granted in some ways that I've not necessarily been thoughtful about it in that way while I acknowledge it. The second thing is um, oftentimes because folks know that I went to Emory University, uh, they may see a more polished Danny. I had not been as willing to be vulnerable and I didn't do it this morning because I thought I'd break down and become a blubbering mess. But what I didn't share in my story is that in that home in the Bronx, where I had some 17, at one point, almost 17 people in that small through family house, when my family network was disrupted and my cousins moved to the South Bronx uh, because they were not able to access public assistance living in our family home, um, that my eldest cousin, uh, Yvonne, got pregnant at an early age and dropped out of school. Um, the next eldest, uh, uh, third eldest, Vernon, was brutally murdered in 1991, that was a hard year for me in college. He was murdered because of gang violence in the South Bronx. A year later, um, his older brother decided to do something retaliatory because he felt like the police couldn't solve it and he was murdered as a result of that. And then my two other cousins, uh, my twin, the twins, have gone in and out of jail um, for drug-related or violence-related things, one of whom is serving a life sentence. So even though I don't share that often, when I think about the network um, in Eastlake, and I think about the work that I do in Eastlake, I'm always clear in my head that it's deeply personal for me because of what my family adored in the Bronx. So maybe as a way to continue this conversation, I would ask others that are um, on the stage, and Othello, you haven't had an opportunity to put your voice in this conversation, I'll put you on the spot. 
Um, and so as a, another way to think about how this program is helping you think about your leadership, what advice would you give to um, others starting up the network or you know, wherever they are in their journey that maybe you would have done differently in the first six months of you taking leadership as a result of some of the things that you're learning through this program? I would say start earlier than you think you need to. Um, you know, we started what we thought was early in the process, um, but it was actually kind of late. There were opportunities that we missed um, because we didn't have this, this lens in front of us. Um, you know, there are things that are very obvious, uh, contracting, um, hiring, things that you think about and, and are kind of always on your, on your radar. But there are other things that aren't so obvious that unless you are being very intentional, unless you are starting this initiative with that in mind and at the forefront are very easy to, to, to slip through the cracks. Um, you know, I look at the fact that we bemoan um, the collective kind of capacity of, of minority contractors in a place like Omaha, right? It's not Atlanta, you know, it's not Dallas. Um, and as soon as I feel like that, I think, well, if we would have been thinking about that or doing something about that before we were laying a single brick, then maybe that circumstance would be a little bit different, right? So had we started collaborating with our community college to get people trained in carpentry or, or any of the trades, you know, because you guys know, I mean, I've been talking to you guys for a long time, you know, before we built anything. Uh, so we had time to say, we know we're gonna invest $90 million in this neighborhood. How do we prepare for that? And the only way that you can do that is to always be thinking about it, have it at the forefront of your, uh, of your radar, um, and to start planning for that. And that's always, you can always do that far earlier than you think you can. It's like as soon as you start negotiating with GCs and things like that, you're like, okay, now we gotta start talking about minority contracts, and it's like it's too late. There's a lot of water under the bridge by that point. So I, to me, the, the single biggest piece of advice I would give is to start considerably earlier than you think you, you should. Uh, maybe I would go back to this, um, you know, being uh, upfront about race. And, and you mentioned it, Sally, and what you said is sort of who am I to be having this conversation. And I, I would say just, you know, what tangible advice might those of you who are white on the panel give to those that are in the audience about how they even perhaps with apprehension can wait, you know, sort of wade into this space um, in a way with some hum humility, but still get some of the things done you need to get done? Um, I think the first thing to do is to educate yourselves and whatever you think you may know, there's more. And the institutions that were created, they've done a damn good job doing exactly what they were built to do. And it is going to take just as much intention and smarts to undo it that it took to do it. And, you know, I, I like Tammy, you know, I thought, I, I've never considered myself to be explicitly biased or racial, but um, racist, but having that knowledge to back up, again, connecting what I knew with 
some of those feelings that bubble up sometimes, and you're like, wait, what is that? But really being able to define those feelings and address them, that's the only way that we're going to be equipped to have the conversations, sometimes really tough conversations, with our white peers to help move them along to where um, we all need, we all have growth on this continuum. But um, to me, it, it's all about knowledge. Just briefly, I mean, I think uh, Michelle has actually been one of my greatest uh, mentors in my education because I, I thought I knew a lot, but she has just fed me incredible podcasts and books, and and I, I can't agree more. Like you have to, you have to walk the journey and understand, and um, I think to you just have to come to the conversation with a willingness to listen and to be and to just. Um, understand people's stories before you can, you know, feel like you can be a part of the conversation. I think the only comment I would have is just to understand that and to be thoughtful about the fact that as, particularly as white individuals, that this is our fight. This is our fight. This is not on the people of color to fight this battle. And I see that all the time as uh, being married to a Latina who is constantly um, we're constantly faced with these situations where you know, she's either be belittled or her opinion is put aside or our community is put aside. And she and I have these conversations about when it is her fight and when it is mine. Um, and we're the ones and our, our history and our people created these systems. And if we do not take leadership to fundamentally unravel those, it's not gonna happen. So we could certainly continue this, this conversation, but I know my time is short here. Um, so one thanks is for all of the executive directors that are part of the um, community. Thank you for pushing us as Purpose Built to say this is really something that we, um, maybe we have talked about, but that we have to do something very specific. And this is, you know, we're on a journey, right? And um, so certainly we are looking for your feedback um, and we appreciate that. Are these an amazing group? Those were the equity ambassadors at the Purpose Built Community's annual conference in Orlando in 2018. You just heard a diverse array of leaders, all thoughtful and coming from their own perspectives, talk about what racial equity means to them and how they're intentionally building it into their work revitalizing their neighborhoods. While they're doing great work and are having a huge impact in their communities, each community is different. Each community requires a unique understanding of place, of context, of history. It's possible and necessary to learn from the example of these equity ambassadors and to think critically about how to move towards racial equity in your own work, in your own community. You're not alone in this challenge. There are helpful resources on racial equity and holistic community development at purposefulcommunities.org. Connect with others around the country working towards racial equity by following Purpose Built Communities on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. We'd like to thank the Equity Ambassadors for their work in pushing us to lead with racial equity.
In our next and final episode, we'll hear from Warren Buffett. Yes, that Warren Buffett. On how America's systems fundamentally misdirect money into the hands of too few to the detriment of the many. And how philanthropy should be focused on funding what works and what has the biggest impact. Too many people have been left behind. If you had told my parents that day I was born in 1930, that the country would experience a six for one increase per person in real stuff, and actually better stuff as we've gone along, they would not have thought that millions and millions and millions of people would live in poverty and, and not really have a chance. Listen to This Is Community wherever podcasts are available or on purposebuiltcommunities.org podcasts where you'll find more information on the purpose-built model and engaging sessions from our annual conferences. Presentations and videos at each of these sessions are on the website as well. This podcast is created in partnership with HL Strategy. Our executive producers are Aton Davidson, Howard Lawley, and Sherry Crawley. Our producer and editor is Brady Hummel. Mixing and mastering is by Matt Honkinen, and our music is from Pitchwire. Fine Productions recorded the conference session featured in this episode. If you like this series, be sure to subscribe and share it. I'm Alexandra Wiggins for Purpose Built Communities, and this is Community. Community.